Well, church family, please uh, turn to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, simply look in the table of contents and uh, you can find a page number for Ruth. When I was growing up, I didn't know much about Ruth. I just knew that she was judged by Joshua. <laughs> That's my Bible joke right there. <laughs> you get it? Casey gets it. Casey wrote that joke. It's good to have Casey back. Well, this, this week is um, Thanksgiving, of course, so uh, I hope you are grateful for something. And uh, we are actually talking about blessings this morning, so that fits. This Wednesday night, we will have our Bible study. It'll be our second uh, session of Ask Anything, which is basically an opportunity to, guess what? Ask anything. Um, so if you have anything on your mind, there is nothing off limits as to the, the theological, biblical, or cultural um, questions that might be on your mind. So please come and ask anything you want, and we can have a discussion on it this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Uh, members, we will have a members meeting directly after the service today. Um, if you're not a member, uh, one thing that's good to know is that we believe that the congregation is, uh, has particular roles and responsibilities. And so for that reason, we have members meetings for those who are covenanted together as a church family, uh, as members here. And we have six members meetings a year, and so each one is uh, very important. So if you're a member, please stick around for that. If you're not a member, uh, just, uh, just know that um, after about 10, 15 minutes or so, we're going to regather for a members meeting. So we invite you to stick around for some fellowship, and then uh, as, as you roll out, we, we will be regathering. Ruth uh, is where we're going to be for the next couple weeks. The book of Ruth, chapter 1, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to ask God for His help as we dive into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, ruled there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These, two, uh, the, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go each of you to your own mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find peace, rest, each one of you in the land, uh, the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. 
And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray and ask God for His help this morning. Father, we come before You and we ask that You would speak to us through this text, that You would Uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would break down the walls of the hardness of our own hearts, that we might hear and receive your word, that we might have ears to hear, a heart that is ready. I pray that you would help me, that I would faithfully communicate your word, not my ideas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on this text and under the title, The Barren Lands of Bitterness. The barren lands of bitterness. It's been said, every test in our life makes us bitter or better. Every problem comes to break us or make us. The book of Ruth begins as a tale of crisis, tests, problems. Chapter 1 is filled with crisis. In verse 1, it says, it starts out by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. The author here is reminiscing of days gone by, illuminating an era in which the judges ruled the land many years before. In the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 23 or 25, it says that during these days, everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. 
This is a day between Joshua and King Saul when Israel was ruled by a series of judges. Now, judges were not men and women in black robes, but they were more like local warlords, military leaders defending their terrain as Israel was this small, struggling people group in the middle of uh, global superpowers. These days of judges were turbulent days. They were days of great fear. So crisis number one is simply in the setting. For the Jews, these are days that they don't want to go back to. These are days that they are glad they did not live through. And so he, the author here is reminding them of these days and saying this story took place in a day of crisis. A crisis number two is also seen in verse one. There is a famine in, in the land. In verse one, we're told that there are these uh, people, this family coming from the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a word that means house of bread, and there's irony here. The town that is called house of bread could not feed the family. There was a great famine in the land. Famines were caused by pestilence, by disease, by locusts, by invasion. We don't know exactly what caused this famine. But because of the famine, there was no food in Bethlehem. The house of bread had become empty. And the plot begins to take shape as this little family moves to Moab. Moab, outside of the promised land. Moab, outside of the people of God. Away from the praises of Yahweh. Their names are given to us. The main characters as the story begins, Elimelech is the father, Naomi is his wife, the mother, and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And in verse 2, we're told that they remained there, which means they settled as sojourners in a foreign land. And this brings me to crisis number three, and that is this. These people are living with no grand plan. They don't have a home. They don't know where their destination is. And I don't know if you know what it's like to be living your life just for survival. You're just trying to live to eat. And someone comes along and says, what's your five-year plan? And you just laugh at them. Because you're trying to figure out how to survive till tomorrow. That's a crisis. Crisis number four. Naomi's husband dies. Look at verse three. But Elimelech, Elimelech, by the way, means God is king. Keep that in mind. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. God is king, died. There's just something about that that shows us the utter hopelessness right now of Naomi's situation. Is God even king? Here we are, no hope. No food, wandering, trying to survive, away from the promised land, away from the people, and away from the praises, uh, the praises of the king, and I'm beginning to wonder if God is even there. Does God care? Does God care for us? Now, verse 4 is, is sort of this little bright note. It's the only bright note in the opening of the book of Ruth. It says, that she has two sons, 
And, uh, and these two sons took Moabite wives. Can you hear the wedding bells? Just a bright little moment here. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. There she is, a Moabite woman, married to the son of Naomi. They lived there for about 10 years. So for 10 years, they seem to have somewhat of an semblance of life. Uh, she doesn't have her husband anymore, Naomi, but she's got uh, two sons who I'm sure love her. They're working together. They're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. They've got two wives. She's got plans. I'm sure she's hoping for some grandbabies. Ten years go by, and we see crisis number five. Death catches up to her two boys. Caught in the grip of death's jaws in verse 5, both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was now left without her two sons and her husband. We're left here with three widows struggling in a foreign land. Where is God when everything is falling apart? I wonder if anybody knows what it's like for everything to be falling apart. Like maybe you've never been there. Maybe nobody in here knows what it's like to have your whole world just kind of come to an end and shatter. Or maybe you know something about that. Maybe you know what it's like for uh, everything to change in a split second. Do you understand that you could walk out of here today and just your whole life is turned upside down? There's a car accident and your child is left paralyzed from the neck down. You get a phone call and you hear that your brother's been shot. He's in the ICU. He's at, he's at shock trauma. He's not going to make it. Your spouse is diagnosed with stage 5 cancer. It's terminal. Or even just generally speaking, let's go back to March 13th, 2020. And everything shuts down. Just, just like this, things change. Life is confusing. Our plans, which were, they looked so good, didn't they? And they just come to an end. What happens? What happens? Where is God when everything seems to be falling apart? Listen, sometimes God takes away what is so valuable so that He might do an invaluable work in your life. Sometimes God, God pulls out what you most prize so that, so that He might uh, do a work in your life which would bring you a true, real, and lasting profit. Sometimes God abducts what you most adore so that you might adore what is, what is so much better. Listen, church, question for you. Are you bitter in your bereavement? Bitterness produces nothing but barren lands. That's our topic this morning. 
I want you to see here the bitterness of Naomi. Scene two. There's food in Bethlehem. They're out in the fields of Moab and they get news that Bethlehem has food. The, 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 the famine is over and they can go home now. So they begin to move home, but as they do in the following verses, I want you to see the barren lands of bitterness. First, bitterness affects your mission. Bitterness affects your mission. As they're going home, Naomi stops and she looks at her daughters-in-law and she says, don't come home with me. She wants to send them back to Moab. Now, if you know anything about old, the Old Testament, you know that the worship of Yahweh was in Israel. And Moab was a pagan land with pagan gods. Go back to your home. Go back to your deities. It's as if she doesn't even care. Oh, she gives some reasoning. She acts like she's kind in all of this. She says, I'm too old in verse 11. She says, I don't even have any sons in my womb, meaning I'm past menopause. I can't produce anything for you. And then she goes on to say, even if I could, like even tonight if I got married and got pregnant this very night, what are you going to do? Wait? 18, 19 years? So she's acting like she is concerned for them, and I think in some part she is, but friends, she's thinking in her flesh. She is not thinking eternally. She does not care about the eternal state of her daughters-in-law. As she sends them home, away from the worship of God and the people of God. Bitterness, church, affects your mission. And it's because we become angry with God in our bitterness. And we say, I don't care about God, so why should I care if anybody cares about God? Look at, look at her anger toward God in verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She understands everything to have happened as being the hand of the Lord against her. That God is no longer for her, but against her. In verse 21, she uses the name Shaddai for God, which is translated Almighty. And Shaddai means uh, the, the, the God of our destinies, uh, the God that is over all of our blessings. In verse 21, she says that the Shaddai, El Shaddai, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Meaning God is not for me, but God is against me. Number two, bitterness affects your faith. The bitter person cannot understand how God can be a loving God amid our suffering and confusion. Some people say, look, if God loves me, then my life is going to be easy. But then other people come along and they say, well, my life is not easy. Therefore, God does not love me. Let me tell you this, church. That first person will 
always become the second person. Because your life (laughs) will not be easy. And so if you think that your life is going to be easy as as proof that God loves you, just be prepared to become that bitter old man or that bitter old woman who hates God. Well, the Christian comes along and says this, since since God does love me, I can trust Him when life is not easy. In contrast to Naomi, we see this young lady named Ruth. There's two of them, Orpah and Ruth. As Naomi sends them on, uh, they both weep and, and say, no, we, we want to stay with you. And, and Naomi gives her reasons as to why they must leave. And so Orpah agrees. And Orpah goes on. We don't know what happens uh, for the rest of her life. But at this point, she leaves and she's no longer part of the story. Ruth has a different kind of response. In verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to her. Everybody say clung. That's the word out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says that man will cleave to his wife. This is a cleaving. This is a 100% kind of commitment saying, I am not going anywhere. Look at verse 16. We see a commitment from Ruth to Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return return from following you. She promises here now to go with her. For where you go, I will go. She promises to remain wherever she stays. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Next, she abandons her own people. She abandons her heritage. And she says this, your people shall become my people. She's just ratcheting up these commitments as she goes on. She then uh, renounces the domestic deities that she grew up with. And she says that your God will be my God. She gives the chronology uh, of her commitment. The, The time frame. How long will this last? Verse 17. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried for life. In in the face of Naomi's anger and resentment and bitterness toward God, we see here the uh, trust of this young woman named Ruth. Trusting God, look at this, even with his judgments. Look at the next line. She says, may the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Trust in God, even if God were to bring judgment upon me, I'm with you. 100% commitment. Robert Hubbard said that Ruth's leap of faith was greater than even Abraham's. Because Ruth here is given no promise. 
She's given no promise of blessing. She's given no promise of having a child. She's given no promise of having a spouse. She's given no promise of having possessions. As a matter of fact, all she knows is that the one witness of Yahweh has said that Yahweh is against her. That Yahweh is, has come after her. She is bitter about Yahweh. Oh, Ruth's commitment outdoes even Abraham's. Because in the face of all of this, Ruth commits herself to the God of this old, barren, bitter woman. She doesn't know what lies ahead. I don't know at what point Ruth is converted, but maybe it's this moment right here. She is a lover and a worshiper of Yahweh. Jesus said, if you don't leave father, mother, brother, sister, if you don't abandon everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. The disciple is one who doesn't come to Jesus to get something in this world. The disciple doesn't come to Jesus to get a spouse and two sons and a couple grandbabies. But disciple, the disciple comes to Jesus for the sake of Jesus alone. Because Christ is the greatest treasure. And we see Ruth here coming to the God of Israel. Coming to Yahweh. For the sake of God alone. Verse 18. Verse 18. What is Naomi's response? When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, it says she said no more. The literal translation here is she stopped talking to her. Ruth has just made the greatest commitment that Naomi has ever heard in her life, and Naomi gives Ruth the cold shoulder. Number three, bitterness affects your relationships. Bitterness affects your relationships. There's an old word of wisdom which says, never trust your tongue when your heart is bitter. Ruth has given Naomi a permanent pledge and Naomi just stops speaking to her. In verse 19, uh, when the whole town hears that Naomi's coming back, it says they all come out to greet her. And look at Naomi's response in verse 21. This is what she says to the town people. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Let's stop right there. Empty. I've got nothing. And she's saying this right in front of Ruth. The bitter person is so focused on what they have lost, they cannot focus on what they have gained. This is why, church, we've got to be careful what we teach. If we teach that your dreams are most supreme, and then your dreams are dashed, what are you left with? If, if, if we teach that your plans are primary, and you've got plans of having a spouse and two sons and a couple daughters-in-law and some grandbabies. And then God comes in and wrecks 
all of your plans. Well, you can't even see a blessing if it were to slap you in the face. This is the woman who's sitting in the pastor's office in tears, crying about how she has no purpose in life and nothing in life, and she's just completely empty in life, and all the while she's holding her daughter in her lap. May we never be so focused on the friends that we've lost that we cannot see the people right around us. May we never be so focused on our plans that have crumbled that we cannot see the blessings of God that He has so clearly given to us. Church, bitterness affects not only your relationship with God, but your relationship with every single person around you. And you can't love your spouse. You can't love your friends. You can't love your children. You can't love your neighbor because you're so bitter. Fourth, and I'm done, bitterness affects your identity. It affects your identity, who you believe you are. It's said that if a rattlesnake is cornered, a rattlesnake will end up biting itself. Isn't this what bitterness does? We think we're doing something with our bitterness at first, don't we? We think we got a right to be bitter. We think we're going to prove something to God by our bitterness. We think we're going to prove something to somebody else by our bitterness. Someone to just show you how bitter I am. And over time, guess what happens? You start biting yourself. You just start destroying yourself. Bitterness begins with a grumble. And over time, it absolutely consumes you. And you are left nothing but a grumble. Bitterness affects your identity. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Mara. Anybody recognize that word Mara? Where was it that the Israelites went after they had left Egypt? God had done so much for them. God had released them from years of uh, being slaves in Egypt. God had uh, uh, split, the, split the Red Sea, ra raised up Moses. They've walked through. He's crushed the armies of Egypt. Now they're out in the wilderness, freed from slavery. And they come to a land, a place called Mara. And they're thirsty. And at Mara, they, they can't drink the water there because the water is bitter. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 24, this is why it was called Mara. It doesn't matter that God had just released them from Egypt. They can't even see all of the blessings of God because they are so focused on what they currently do not have. And see, Ruth takes this on as her own identity. When she uses the word Mara, she knows that she's referring to Exodus chapter 15. She's saying, look, that reality for our people is who I am. It's not just something I'm dealing with. It's not just something I'm praying through. 
But she says, don't even call me pleasant anymore. I want you to call me Mara. It's because bitterness becomes who you are. It takes over. It's like an evil empire that completely uh, uh, ransacks every village in your soul. And you become bitter. So how then, church, do we get past bitterness? How do we get past bitterness? If bitter, bitterness affects your mission, if bitterness affects your faith, if bitterness affects your relationships, if bitterness uh, affects your own identity of who you are, how then do we get past bitterness? Let me give you something that you can grab onto right here. Bitterness comes from disappointments. And our disappointments come from our failed plans. So how then do we not become a bitter person? Well, number one, trust God with your disappointments. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are filled with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Listen, actions do produce consequences. But your life is not merely driven by a series of consequences. But there is a greater architect of your life. There is a greater architect of uh, a writer of your life, which includes even the actions, the good actions you've taken, the bad actions you've taken, the mistakes you've made, the, the, the crap you're now lying in because of those mistakes. All of your life has been written by an author that is far better than you. And so then therefore, we can submit, listen, our disappointments to God. This isn't how I planned for it. I'm disappointed right now. God, I'm giving this one to you. El Shaddai, the God of blessings, the God of our destiny. So how then do we submit our disappointments to God? Well, we trust God also with our plans. Look, it's good to plan. Don't get me wrong. But when you plan, say, if God wills it. God can write a better story for your life than you can. If you were the architect of your life, would you include the parts of trouble? Would you include the scenes of horror? Would you include those chapters that fall into times of despair and disaster and confusion? Absolutely not. But listen, when, when God is at work, your plans being destroyed may just be the beginning of something better. In the bitter confusion of life, we may find that God, through the bitter confusion, is accomplishing. These things become the very means of accomplishing a surprising good. Eric and I were just talking about your father, Eric, when he passed away, and how God used that to bring you to 
faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you were writing your story, would you have ever written that part into your story? Of course not. You wouldn't plan for disaster. You wouldn't plan for troubles. Naomi would have never planned out her life in this way, which includes a famine, which includes the loss of her husband, which includes the loss of her two children. Ruth would have never planned out her life in this way, which includes the death of her husband. We don't write our lives this way. And that's why we don't write our lives. <laughs> Look, it's, it's like reading a novel. It's like, uh, I remember when I was, one of my favorite books I've ever read, it's called Tess of the Duberville. Anybody ever read Tess of the Dubervilles? It's been years since I read it. This girl has trouble after trouble after trouble in her life. Taken advantage of. Like by the time you're in chapter 6, you're like, man, her life is miserable. But when you're reading a book, you're not freaking out. Like when, you're, when your lead character has hit tragedy, you're not freaking out. Because you're not done with the book yet. And you know the author's a really good author. And so you're just enjoying every moment of it, even the downturns in the book. Now, listen, when you are going through your life and you get to chapter 6, and chapter 6 is called tragedy, church, it ain't time to start freaking out. It's not time to lose it. Because... The story's not over yet. you got a whole lot of pages left, and you can trust the author of your book. And even this chapter, the chapter which is called tragedy, even chapter 6 falls under the all things which work together for your good. I wonder if somebody here understands what it's like to suffer and would say, look, I would never write my story in the way that it has played out. I would have never penned these words, but there is another word who is a greater author than I, and that word I trust. Look at your disappointments in the face and recognize these disappointments do not define the end of my story. Just watch how God is going to use the discouragements and the setbacks and the disappointments for your good and for His glory in this world. As the chapter, yeah, amen, as the chapter closes, as the chapter closes, look at verse 22. There's a, uh, there's a little turn in the story here. We get, we get a little glimpse of life all of a sudden. Naomi and Ruth, they return from the country of Moab. And it says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest, the, the barley harvest. They come at the beginning of the barley harvest. Scholars say 
that the author of Ruth is a literary artist. Because the chapter begins in Bethlehem with a famine. There is no seed. And the chapter ends with the woman coming back with no seed, with no hope, barren. And there, there in Bethlehem, a seed has been planted. And it's harvest time. There's singing. There's rejoicing. There's life. The seed has been planted and it is time to feast. Listen, in God's providence, Ruth is about to meet somebody. In God's providence, I don't want to get too far ahead in our story, but there's going to be a baby in her womb. And I don't want to give you uh, the the ending away too quickly here, but in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. This Moabite woman is about to be impregnated with the seed of the Messiah. Naomi is about to be blessed beyond her wildest imagination. Naomi, listen, here's the Gospel. Naomi has done nothing to to deserve this blessing. There's nothing about her life that would cause God to say, I'm going to bless her socks off. She cursed God. She's become bitter against God. She accused God of being against her all the while. God had plans of putting her into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Oh, church, this is the grace of God. It's no different than you and I. Look, we are not Ruth. We're Naomi. We're people who are bitter against God. We're people who are angry at every turn. Our plans seem to fall apart, and we just get upset and wonder why God doesn't love us. And God says, I'm going to give you grace anyway. Because the gospel is not based on the quality of Naomi's faith. But the gospel is based on the quality of God's grace. The quality of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. If he is a good enough Messiah, then he can save a bitter old person like you and like me and bless somebody like Naomi. Yeah. Listen, in Exodus chapter 15, the people grumble at Mara. After God has done so much, there they are, grumbling. And God, if I were God, could have said, forget you. I'm just going to knock you into this river. And, let you, and just watch you drift down these bitter waters. But God said, no, I'm going to turn your bitter waters into something sweet. There was a tree nearby. Take that tree and throw it into the water. God told Moses in chapter 15 and verse 25 in Exodus, 
Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Not because of the quality of Israel's faith, but because of the quality of God's grace. Church, there is another tree that makes our bitter waters sweet. It came through the lineage of Ruth. Through the lineage of Ruth, there was one who came into this world, Jesus Christ, who comes in in a similar way as Ruth came to Naomi and pledged herself to Naomi and said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And I'm going to remain with you. Her descendant comes to us and says, I am coming to you and I'm going to remain with you. And he took the, the, the penalty for our bitterness in his body on that tree Bearing the curse of our sin. Dying, buried, and three days later, He rose from the dead. Look, where does our story go? When you're in chapter 6, which is called tragedy, where does our story go? We find the conclusion of our story in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead. He is the conclusion to our story. He is our good ending. Yes, church, this page that we are currently on might be a page of utter confusion, but I'm skipping forward all the way to the end where getting to the end of the book, He wipes away our tears. There is no more crying and no more death, no more pain, for the old order is put away Behold, all things have been made new. Amen? Bitterness, church, leaves you barren. But Christ has swallowed up our bitterness. And behold, a harvest is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to swallow up our bitterness, to take the bitterness of sin and death, to die in our place, to be raised from the dead on that third day. We pray, God, that you would help us to trust you in the midst of discouragement, setbacks, trials, trouble, and that we would see in Christ something so much more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we think on the words just preached, let's sing a verse of this song. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross.
together today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it saying this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a, a meal of remembrance as we come together and re, are reminded that we are in Christ, that He has died for us, uh, bled for us, we are brought into the new covenant because of what He's done, and we stand together then as a church family. It is a visible uh, display of the visible church of God. And so therefore, uh, we ask that uh, those who take it this morning are part of the visible church of God. Uh, if you're a member of this church or a member of another church that preaches the same Jesus that you heard this morning, uh, then we invite you to take uh, communion with us today. I want to take a moment of examination, examining our hearts, examining our lives. The, Paul, uh, the Bible through Paul exhorts us, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. Let a person examine himself then. Is there any way in which your life is a living hypocrisy of your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, church, in that case, refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. Examine your hearts. Examine your commitments before we eat and drink together. Jesus took the bread and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me.
Jesus took the cup and he passed it to his disciples. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. stand together as we sing as summer flowers we fade and die fame youth and beauty hurry by but life eternal calls to us at the cross Smile. 